when we get people stable on medications and we're treating them, they're now going to get follow-up for their medical care. They're going to take care of their diabetes. They're going to check that uh, growth on their skin that looks like it might be cancerous. All cause mortality decreases by 50%. If having a low barrier approach means that I lose to care 50 people this week who only stuck around for a week, don't care. We gave them an opportunity and there's personal accountability for what a person chooses to do. Our job is to make it as straightforward and as simple as possible and as safe and friendly and accepting as possible so that they know they're safe and they know we can help them. And then from there, we'll, we'll take whatever benefits we can get. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life contains the real stories of individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. Hello and welcome to another episode of From Darkness to Life and Our Collective Journey podcast here at the Plugged In Media Network. Uh, today, as, as per usual, I've got my partner Ryan Oscar here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me today, Rick. Inviting? Uh, you invited me today. I had nothing else to do just sitting on my couch doing nothing today <laughs> i'm gonna go ahead and call bullshit on that but uh <laughs> voluntold maybe um today we're talking with uh, dr nathaniel day um we had the pleasure of meeting him a few times now um he was he first time i met him he was down we did a bit of a press conference um to make some announcements that the goa was incorporating some new programming and some new funding um, and then had the pleasure of meeting him again at the recent recovery summit that we attended. So welcome to the show. I don't know if I should call you doctor or Mr. or Nathaniel or Dr. Day. Yeah, you, you can call me uh, whatever you want, um, <laughs> you know, so long as it's not too rude. But, uh, you know, <laughs> you'll save that uh, for me. Nathan- Nathaniel's just fine uh, or, or Dr. Day's fine if uh, you want to keep it formal. But uh, yeah, whatever. I've gotten in trouble from that in the past. I remember my, my wife's a nurse and we went to their Christmas party at the, from their um, office and there's, you know, probably 20 physicians that work at it. Well, maybe not 20, but 10 or 15. And, uh, and I spoke to one of the doctors and I, I said, Mr. And his last name and his wife came over and corrected me and I was still drinking and using it at the time. So I was <laughs> a little bit full, but she came over and corrected me and said, that's Dr. Yeah. Blank. And I looked at her again, a little bit inebriated, and I went, he's not my fucking doctor. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> That's the part uh, of that story I was waiting to yeah, hear. Yeah, which uh, <laughs> he laughed, she didn't. But uh, yeah. So anyway, welcome to the show. Um, we're just going to kind of turn it over to you. You've got some really interesting programs that you've been a part of and, uh, you know, you've done a, as much research as I think maybe me and Ryan have just on a different end of that research plan. Um, but yeah, go ahead. What would you, uh, what would you like to talk about and present today? Yeah. Well, you know what, first off, I really appreciate the invite today and it's uh, a pleasure to meet up again and look forward to the conversation we're going to have. Um, I'm the medical director in Alberta health services of the virtual opioid dependency program. And, uh, and so that's the, you know, the main thing that, uh, I'll talk about today, but uh, happy to sort of venture out into other topics. Uh, You know, we could talk about the digital overdose response app, uh, which, um, you know, I gave some advice uh, to the group that organized that and put it out. And um, there are other things too that, you know, so the, in the virtual opioid dependency program uh, over the last few years, we've um, really tried to uh, make the program as accessible and uh, client focused as possible. So, uh, for example, we've eliminated wait lists. So there's there's no way to uh, get started on treatment, and a person can start the same day they call in. So our uh, median wait time to get service in our program is zero days. We also have been doing some really uh, cool, uh, innovative work with police services in Alberta. Um, as you can imagine, that some of our uh, using friends do end up in police cells from time to time. And if they're using opioids uh, and are in terrible withdrawal, instead of 
you know, leaving them in cells while they're waiting to see a justice and determine if they're getting released or not, to be able to compassionately say, hey, you know, recovery is an option here. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, why don't you try out some of these, uh, some of these medications that can really impact your ability to, to be well and to, to be able to think more clearly and to make more rational decisions for yourself and uh, maybe take those first few steps into that recovery journey. Uh, and, and so that's really an exciting thing that we're doing. Uh, and and so there's, there's some other things that uh, we're working on. But all in all, the uh, whole objective is uh, for us to be able to work with all of the different partners because there are so many people, yourselves included, who are part of the, the recovery-oriented system of care, where we're trying to make it as straightforward and as accessible for people as possible so that when they're in that moment uh, saying to themselves, you know what, um, enough's enough, I can't keep living like this, that uh, we're giving them uh, a multitude of options to choose from to say, okay, well, let's give this a shot and, and maybe, it will, maybe it will be helpful for me. That's amazing. And I love that eliminating all, you know, trying to eliminate all those barriers. Cause Rick and I, we talk about this all the time, how that window of opportunity, when somebody is maybe just a little bit willing, if there aren't options there and somebody there to help them, that window slams so quickly and they may never make it back. So that's amazing that the Alberta government and, and yourself and the rest of the, the police services on board with that across the province. And I think it's, it's a huge uh, increase in accessibility is for people who are ready. You know, that's the key, right? Is people are, when they're ready, everybody's going to become ready at a different time. But man, I used to work in the police service here in collaboration with them. And I'd go down and visit and talk with anybody in cells every morning who was in there for drugs or alcohol related issues. And so many times people are in withdrawal in there and what an opportunity to, to get them on a program like this. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, um, well, part of why we thought up of making the virtual opioid dependency program in the first place is that there are just way too many, way too many barriers. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I had worked in inpatient addiction treatment for several years and was taking a break from it, um, you know, sort of resetting for myself and figuring out, you know, where I was in my career and what I wanted to be doing with my time. And um, I was, uh, so I was working temporarily in brain injury rehab. And uh, you know, slightly different thing. Yeah. Uh, although we were seeing we were seeing people who were coming in with brain injuries associated with their drug use, mm-hmm. and so like I I was actually driving back up to Pinoka where I live, and um, I'd been at the Foothills Hospital in Calgary, and uh, I'd just seen two young guys, um, and both of them had had overdoses from opioids. And uh, both of them had, uh, you know, fairly substantial brain injuries because of that. Right. And they were, um, you know, they were likely to need locked care. Wow. So locked long-term care for the rest of their lives. And so I was driving back to driving back home and thinking about them. And, you know, the reality is that I, like, I have my American Board of Addiction Medicine training. I'm a fellow of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. I'm, I'm working in brain injury rehab. And I'm, I, you know, we're, we're seeing, you know, we're at that time, we're seeing more and more opioid overdoses. And, you know, it, it really weighed on me, you know, what can I do um, to help figure out how to make the system better? And so, for example, one of the guys um, with this severe brain injury, he was, um, you know, his story is that he'd been in corrections um, and, uh, you know, was not on treatment and was released from corrections. And as any of us, um, you know, who have had addictions or who work in addictions can uh, predict, mm-hmm. he got released, um, went, went home, back to his old environment, immediately picked up. But his tolerance was gone right. and he had an overdose and, you know, a family member found him blue. And, uh, and, and so you sit there and you go, okay, you know, are we doing enough in corrections? Are we doing enough at transitions, right? You know, so is it okay for us? We've, we've got one of the best funded health systems in the world. Is it okay for us to just say, see ya, tough luck, yeah. you know, you're out. And, um, you know, say to somebody that, you know, they're going to have to stick it out for the first week until they can get an appointment at a clinic. 
And then, uh, you know, so, so I, was, I was driving back uh, thinking about this and thinking about how our system had some really substantial gaps that people were falling into. And then um, not, not long after, like it was probably the same week, actually, I was doing an on-call shift at the psychiatric hospital. And um, there was a young lady who came in and, um, you know, uh, without, uh, you know, giving too many details of the story, because obviously, you know, we're not, we're not trying to identify anybody or their, you know, personal uh, stories or whatever. But, um, you know, what had happened for her is that, you know, she was pregnant um, using opioids, was living in one of the big cities in Alberta, and um, uh, got started on treatment, did great, stabilized, delivered a healthy, happy baby, was well enough that baby went home with her. And, um, but she was in early recovery. And we know that, you know, it takes a while for us to get established in recovery. And um, she was a new mom and a single mom. And uh, so lots on her plate. Mm-hmm. So she decided to, to move back to rural Alberta and, uh, and get support from her family because uh, that's where she was from. And uh, her addiction provider, her uh, in the city, just cut her off medication. Wow. So she wasn't able to make it for appointments and she couldn't come for random drug screens and you know that sort of thing. So they cut her off and she white knuckled it for a while and, uh, uh, and then had a slip and was under supervision of children's services and baby was apprehended. And so I was sitting across the table from her at the psych hospital because she'd actually tried to kill herself mm-hmm. um, because, you know, this baby, which had motivated so much change for her, um, had, had been apprehended and uh, her life was falling apart. And so I, at that time, I was sitting there thinking, you know, what? for the cost of, of those guys who are going to need long-term care, we could build something that would actually meet the needs of of people who don't have great access. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we, we pitched a proposal and we got some, um, some funding to, to pilot whether or not we could actually do opioid dependency treatment using virtual tools. So wow. uh, in, you know, at that time, we were using telehealth mm-hmm. and there are telehealth endpoints, telehealth video links in like hundreds of communities all around Alberta. Um, at hospitals and addiction and mental health clinics and, in, uh, you know, public health clinics and other places. And so we're using those. Um, and then now, nowadays we do almost everything by Zoom because, uh, you know, thanks to the pandemic. Uh, but we've been able, you know, over the last few years, and VODP has only been in existence for a few years now, um, but we've been able to provide services to people in, uh, you know, well over 300 communities all across the province, Basically, in Alberta, anyone can get started on treatment the same day they ask it. If someone gets released from a jail or from detox or from the emergency department after an overdose or basically anywhere, um, it's one toll-free number. I'll say it for your audience, uh, 1-844-383-7688 or look up vodp.ca. But um, you know, with one phone call, if you're needing to start treatment today. So today you ran out, today you're sick, today you're feeling like it's time to make a change. Mm-hmm. Call us today and we'll help you today. And if you just got out of jail or if you just got out of some other place, give us a call today and we'll help you today to make sure that you're not cut off of your medications, that you can continue forward. We can help connect you with other resources, including you know great, uh, great resources, recovery-oriented resources that are going to help a person build bridges, you know, into friendships and relationships and connections that are going to help them navigate sort of uh, past that early recovery and into middle recovery and and well-established recovery. Yeah, there's two things there that really stick out to me. One is is the opportunity that you have there because, you know, we've, we've talked about the timing of that desire to change many, many times and what a fleeting window that might be. And, uh, and and not, not everybody by any means, but you know, there's finding yourself in a prison cell is a, is a pretty good place to hopefully see a rock bottom, which is a really good, you know, jumping off point to, to go, okay, maybe, maybe it's time to make some changes. Um, so I think, you know, 
having the opportunity to do that in that setting at that time is, is pretty critical. The other thing I was hoping you'd speak about, um, is, is the movement towards, uh, sublocate. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I think that's a pretty significant change too, because I've known, I've actually known people that, uh, one client specifically that we've had to deal with, shouldn't say have to get to get to deal with, um, he he spent some time in in the corrections program and uh, didn't necessarily go in there with an opioid addiction, but um, they they put him on Suboxone just as a blanket treatment. Um, and I can't say that for sure. I mean, it's it just kind of the bits and pieces of, of the story I get. Um, and he he ended up coming out addicted to uh, Suboxone, which then progressed you know is the i'm sure you can speak to it better than i can brain chemistry intolerance and, and such changes and uh and now there's a market for there's a street market for uh suboxone and so it progressed to a point where now individuals have are released from custody with mm-hmm. a prescription for suboxone which they fill and just convert to cash and so they can feed other less regulated um substances that they, they're choosing to use and so i think that was a huge shift moving to sublocate and hopefully um hopefully that's something that we're the the goa and, and ahs is looking at kind of a migration towards and maybe you can just explain the difference and why at least i'm a big fan of that i'm sure you know why for all the obvious reasons Yeah, for sure. Happy to talk about that. And maybe, you know, to set the stage for talking about Sublicade. And there's another product as well that, you know, there are people in your audience will likely be interested in called Probufine, which uh, is available in Alberta. But we can talk about both of those. But maybe to to set the stage, we'll talk about Suboxone a little bit. And you're right. There there is a street market for Suboxone. And we're not trying to to build the street market or to, to create problems for people. Something that I've heard from uh, from others coming out of jail as well is that, uh, uh, or I, sh- I should say corrections, because I think jails and remands and uh, detention centers all have different meanings, and mm-hmm. and uh, and so we don't want to m- mix those up. But in any case, you know, I've I've also heard of people where they have gone in, um, they're used to using substances to not to numb out. And, you know, one of the few substances that they can access is by reporting an opioid addiction history and being able to get started on Suboxone. Um, and so that's something where, you know, there's some work that needs to be done to try and, uh, you know, we're not, none of us are trying to make the problem worse. That's for sure. But um, one of the things that would be interesting, I think, to your audience about Suboxone is that uh, there's been some research done to actually look at street market um, and, you know, why are people buying Suboxone in the street? How are they using it? Um, how much of a problem is it? And, uh, and again, because if it's a big problem, then we need to really tighten up access. And if it's not a big problem, then we need to be reassured about some of the things we're doing about it. So, uh, just as a as a side note, um, when they've looked at um, suboxone trafficking on the streets, about ninety percent of the people that they uh, talk that that respond to the surveys that answer the questions say that they're when they're buying suboxone on the street, it's to manage withdrawal. Uh, or to deal with cravings. And so, for example, if you've got somebody who has zero interest in stopping using right now, um, but they need to show up for work on Monday, they know that, you know, they can use, use, use up to a certain point. And I'm not, mm-hmm. we're not going to provide advice to people <laughs> <laughs> on how to do that, but they can use, and then they have their street obtained Suboxone that they can take and then not be in withdrawal while they're at work. Mm-hmm. And so there's some things like that. So about 90% of it seems to be where if, if you could actually get them engaged in recovery and, in, and get them engaged in treatment, that you dry up that, that part of the demand right. pie. Um, and then there's, there's a, a, another about 10% of people who are using it to get, to get high for sure. Um, but one of the interesting things that they find is that a person's ability to get high from it uh, is pretty short-lived. So because of its partial agonism, so right. that means that the buprenorphine in Suboxone goes up to the person's mu opioid receptor, latches onto it really tight, and turns it on. 
So if, if right now I'm opioid naive and I take Suboxone, that turn on's for sure going to make me feel uh, intoxicated. It's for sure going to make me feel loaded. Uh, but the reality is that that partial agonism, it, it's sort of, li it's limited to, the, to whatever that, uh, that sort of partial stimulation is. And if we do that steadily for, you know, a week, for 14 days, for 21 days, we get to a place where actually it's not working anymore. So we're not able to, even if we double our dose or triple our dose, which mm -hmm. if we were using heroin or fentanyl, I mean, we can just get past our tolerance by using more with Suboxone. There's this ceiling where it just, it doesn't go past that. And so when you look at um, sort of two things that we measure in terms of Suboxone uh, abuse and, you know, street problems, one is the number of people showing up in the emergency department with Suboxone-related problems. Mm -hmm. And then the other is um, people presenting to rehab with a primary Suboxone problem, right? Because if people are showing up, at, it, it's just like people say marijuana is not addictive. <laughs> and then in every jurisdiction where we've legalized marijuana, we see more and more people showing up at rehab saying, I've got a marijuana problem. So, you know, we know that there's a discrepancy between that. And it isn't that marijuana is necessarily the worst thing ever for everybody, but, you know, it, it is affecting people and uh, it's a problem for many people. And so the same thing with Suboxone. So when we track Suboxone presentations to uh, rehab, we find that those are very low. Now, that being said, we still don't want people experimenting with Suboxone. So there's no safe opioid out there. Nobody should be playing with opioids. Too many people are drowning in the opioid river and we need to get people, we need people to stop swimming in the river. So we don't want to play with this. You know, nobody, we do not want someone to get into opioids using Suboxone if thinking that it might be safer, they might not get addiction. The reality is that if you're abusing opioid to get a, uh, or pardon me, Suboxone to get an opioid high, it's going to top out and you're not going to get high from it anymore. And your, your sort of brain idea that I need an opioid to get high, mm -hmm. is just going to push you into stuff like fentanyl. Yeah. So we, we don't want to go there at all. But um, anyway, all of that to say that we really should be pushing to use buprenorphine in people who have a real opioid addiction. We don't want people messing around with it if they don't have an opioid addiction. And we've got these two new products, which are fantastic in terms of real ongoing recovery where we don't feel uh, ruled by a drug. And uh, what I mean by that is, you know, I've got many people where their life's amazing. They, they've had so much recovery, their recovery capital has grown and they're doing great, but they really resent. And, and patients say this to me, um, you know, pretty regularly, that they resent having to take a pill every day to feel okay. Um, that it feels, you know, it's, it's a thousand times better than when they were smoking fentanyl, right. but at the end of the day, they still have to take something. And, and there's that habit yeah. piece. And, and so I've had patients where they're trying to come, you know, finish treatment or they're trying to come down on their dose. And it's now part of their routine. They wake up in the morning, they take their dose, they wait, they have their coffee, they, you know, they have their breakfast and they get in their car and they go to work and, you know, all of that stuff. And they just would really love to lose that piece of mm -hmm. having to take the pill. Plus it's a habit, right? So if I take it today, I feel fine. If I don't take it today, I feel like hell. And so how do I get to a place where I can just be me without having to take something. So we, we totally get that and, and understand that. And for people who are established in their recovery and they're ready to move forward, you know, it's entirely reasonable for us to be looking at options for not having to dose every day and to, to be able to complete treatment. Now, I'll put a caveat there. If you take a thousand people who are taken off treatment there uh, for opioids, they're, uh, Overdose rate doubles after you take them off the medication. And uh, that there's some challenges with those numbers because if, um, Rick, you're being a terrible client and you're swearing at the staff and you're barely going to the pharmacy to pick up your doses and I take you off treatment, 
that's an entirely different scenario than you've got your life back, you've got your family back, you're working a steady job and, you know, you're well-established in your recovery groups and, you know, you've done a ton of recovery work and you're completing treatment. That's very different. And a lot of the research around completing treatment just takes, you know, sort of anybody we take off medication. And so it mixes these groups. I do appreciate how you used me as the example for that. Not Ryan. (laughs) So do I. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I know Ryan wouldn't be like that. (laughs) No, absolutely. I'd be a way better client. (laughs) So that just shows you that we have actually met this man a couple of times. Oh, yeah. So, good. so I, and I didn't really get into Sublicate. So Sublicate is, is a once a month shot mm-hmm. of buprenorphine. So it's the same active ingredient as Suboxone, but it's a, it's a once a month shot and it actually lasts longer than a month, but we need to top it up every month. And what it does is it allows us to completely break the habit of putting a pill in our mouth every day to feel okay. So now we can just live our lives. We're not thinking about it. We don't have that uh, psychological habit Mm -hmm. of dosing or missing doses and all of that. And then um, what's really brilliant about it is that, um, and, and I mean, you can imagine if you're having to go to the pharmacy once a week or every other day or every other week or whatever to now be just getting a shot once a month and you're not even at the pharmacy, you're not even thinking about it, how liberating that is for people who are working and uh, are, are doing other things with their lives. But um, on top of that, uh, because it lasts longer than a month, what happens is over time as people have uh, you know a bunch of shots is that they get a buildup of the buprenorphine in their system. And uh, we've had a bunch of people now where their goal is to complete treatment, to come off of treatment. And after they've had the shot for several months and they've got that buildup, we're just stopping the shot. And they're very gradually tapering off Mm. without them even thinking about it, without the old way. The old way was like breaking up the pills and taking a smaller, smaller amount. And the, the problem with that approach is, of course, and, and when you think about it logically, any, any of us would predict this. The fact of the matter is if you're breaking up the pills in a smaller, smaller amount, every day as you're going down on dose, that fraction of a pill is becoming more and more important to you. Yeah. You're, having, you're playing all kinds of head games with yourselves of, am I going to take the small fragment of pill today or the big fragment of pill today? Oh, no, my sister-in-law is coming over to visit. <laughs> I'm taking the big fragment of pill today. And as soon as we start thinking that way, we're screwed yeah. because now we're chemical coping, right? We're using the, fra- the size of the pill or the amount we're dosing to deal with life's challenges as mm-hmm. opposed to just moving forward. So having the shot's a brilliant option for us to just take that out of our hands and have a very slow taper. And the, this is where that probufene implant comes in as well. So it's, again, the same medication as uh, Suboxone. It's buprenorphine. Um, it's for people who are on lower doses. So, you know, let's say uh, I was in, uh, in jail or in cells and I was uh, started on 24 milligrams of Suboxone. And then, you know, as my brain recovers and I'm not using those more intense drugs, I can actually drop my Suboxone dose slowly over time with minimal side effects. Um, so we can get down. And then once we get to that eight milligram mark, the, the implant, which everyone wonders, you know, is there a pump or there are electronics? Is there a, you know, is there a battery or a tracking device? No, it's just a little piece of plastic that has Suboxone embedded in it. And it just dissolves out of the plastic over time. But what it does is, is it actually um, releases uh, the Suboxone or the buprenorphine, um, at a steady dose at that eight milligram level or less for six straight months. So for six months, we're not going for shots to the pharmacy. We're not doing it. We're just living our lives. And if we're really ready to be done, so we've done the recovery work. We're not stressing out when we've got, you know, we're not thinking about using when we face life stressors. Um, Then what we do is we actually just leave it in for six additional months and it will do a very slow taper over those six additional months. Now, at the end of that, we have not put a pill in our mouths to manage how we're feeling for a year. We're at the taper is so slow that almost everybody we've done this with um, is having, you know, basically no withdrawal. Well, I've had a couple of people where they call in and they're like, you know, oh, I'm worried. I think I might be having withdrawal. And then the next day they're like, I got a cold. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I'm fine. Um, but basically, it's, it's so gentle. And I've had the pleasure of, 
you know, being on a Zoom call, I think of uh, one of my patients, former patients now, where, you know, he's in his work truck at a work site, you know, he's been promoted a couple of times in the company and is a boss. And I'm telling him, hey, good news, buprenorphine's not even detectable in your system with our CSI kind of level gas chromatography test of, of your urine. It's not detectable anymore. You're done. You're done. And he had no idea. So he had just been living his life and going to work and taking care of his family and doing the things he needed to and no clue that he was actually off treatment. And so when you think about that, you think of that, you know, those people who have a higher risk of overdose when they come off medication. That's really, I think, um, in that setting of like, oh my gosh, I'm off medication. Ah, what am I going to do? Compared to somebody where we've done one of these really slow tapers over using the long acting products where they've already been off Medicaid that first month that we worry about they, that first month already happened. Yeah. And, uh, and so psychologically they, you know, they're, they're okay. And, uh, and so we're seeing really good results with that. What, <clears throat> what I think is really interesting is we've, you know, there's been many a conversation around harm reduction and harm reductionists and harm reduction therapy. And, and uh, I've often struggled um, with it because, you know, I, I don't ever want to really, <clears throat> blast anybody but um for me for my experience you know i don't i don't harm reduction would not have worked for me um but what i really like about this is is kind of amalgamating the two philosophies um and we we've actually kind of reframed our language to match some some other language into uh uh abstinence focused harm reduction Mm -hmm. is is um what, what absolutely makes sense to me right and it's you know, as, as long as I, I can support everything that you're saying, right? Like, let's, let's get on board. Let's wean somebody off. Let's get them the control. And, and I love the beauty of, 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 uh, of the implant because it's, it's, it is so psychological, right? It is so, I mean, even, you know, I can speak to that even as a, a guy that takes, um, antidepressants, right? It's, it, I, I struggled in recovery, three years in mm-hmm. four years into recovery starting antidepressants because i'm like man this this feels r- wrong right because i i'm now and that's just like you said right my brain's telling me you've worked so hard to free yourself from um you know taking that pill and being chemically dependent on anything and and i've had to apologize to my wife for not starting antidepressants years before because i was <laughs> like wow it, what a remarkable difference yeah. it makes, but, um, but absolutely I can see the psychology of just, you know, mm. cause every day that I pop that bottle, I've got, you know, this little voice in my head's going, yeah, you're still there. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, to be able to just naturally wean yourself off and, and the beauty of not even realizing that you've stopped and you're doing it on your own. Um, huge. Yeah. Like, huge. Absolutely. And, uh, the other piece is, Many of the opioid addicts that I've worked with, you know, especially if they're IV drug users, they build this ritual around using the needle and pre- preparation and preparing all their goods and stuff, right? And now you're taking Suboxone and now you've, you know, slowly replaced that routine with getting, you know, down to the pharmacy every morning, getting your pill. And, and now this has become your new routine. So it's just building those new pathways. And if you can do it through a shot a month or this um, implant, you know, you're completely breaking that pattern and you're not replacing it with another routine based on another substance. And I love that part of it. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I, like I, I know for myself, if I were battling with an opioid addiction right now, personally, you know, by my first um, choice for medication would be to go on buprenorphine and get stabilized. Then I'd be thinking about the, sh- the shot uh, likely because I'd, if I were at the beginning, I'd likely need a higher dose than the eight. And then I'd look at at sort of coming down as I was ready. Um, and, and uh, you know, cause the big thing, just, just like, um, just like you were saying, Rick, the fact of the matter is, is that function matters, mm-hmm. right? So uh, you used a great example around an antidepressant. If without the antidepressant, our life is way worse and the life for a family is way worse. Um, there's a problem there. And so if we add the antidepressant and all the, it's allowing us to function, it's allowing us to, to build our lives the way that we want them to be. We're able to be more functional for ourselves and for our families, more functional in our community. You know, 
we're treating something. We're actually, you know, just, just like we take insulin for diabetes. We're actually treating something. We're making life better. We're improving our lives using a medication. And that's totally okay. Um, and, and the same thing, you know, I, I want to put a plug out for people where as they've come down on treatment doses, they become less functional. And, and so there, there are some people who, who are going to need to stay on medication for a long time. And, and we have to recognize that if their function's better, so if, you know, if I'm taking medication today and it's allowing me to be a better father, a better husband, a better worker, a better member of society, that that's okay. Um, that, you know, none of us look down on that. We, we want them to get the support they need. But if I can come down on medication and be more functional, even better. Um, you know, and, and I, th- I think that having that sort of spectrum approach of saying, hey, look, this is about real people and their lives and helping people get where they, they want to be and need to be for themselves and for their families really matters. And, uh, you know, we, we see people all the time, all the time who are stabilizing, are doing well, are getting their heads clear, and then are making really rational really smart decisions for themselves about where they want to go with life. And mm-hmm. uh, it's not fentanyl. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and to be uh, maybe a little bit political here, um, it's not to hydromorphone uh, either. And, uh, you know, when, when people are getting into a space where they're thinking clearly and uh, they're starting to see good results on a recovery journey, um, they're they're not looking over their shoulders saying, "Hey, that was better," um, and and so we 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 need to be able to offer people that help, uh, like we were talking about before, as soon mm-hmm. as they want it. Actually, part of how we figured out how to do same day medication starts is that um, we had a tragic case come to us where at that time our wait time was I think three point six five days. And, uh, and we felt pretty good about that. That was a really good number uh, in Alberta compared to other programs. And really, that number was all about scheduling a telehealth. So if you called me up, and uh, I'll, I'll use Ryan as the example this time, if you <laughs> called me up and said, hey, I really need to get some help today. I've been, I've been smoking fentanyl and I'm going to die. Um, we'd say, for sure, we want to help you. We'd talk with you. We'd go through some assessment questions. And then we'd book a telehealth. Mm-hmm. And so if you're in Medicine Hat, we have to send that you know, uh, request in to the hospital or the addiction and mental health clinic in, in Medicine Hat and find a time that works for you and works for their clinic. And when they're open, we have to go to the scheduling people. And there's a bit of back and forth. And that, that usually took at least a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so what happened in our program is we had a request for service. So a young person had gone into an addiction counselor, had said, look, I'm in deep, deep trouble. I need help. They called us and faxed the referral form. And, uh, you know, you know in any, as a provider, you guys know that anytime someone does that, that they're really worried about the person. And so we were, we reached out to this uh, young person and, and tried to connect with them immediately. And, and actually, you know, we tried, we have a standard. So we try at least three times over three business days to contact somebody. And what we, we never, we never reached her. And then we found out later that we never reached her because she was already dead. Mm. Um, and she died of an overdose. And, um, and so, I, you know, I was sitting there thinking to myself, like, I don't know how to do it faster. Like I, I don't control the telehealth sites. I don't control the scheduling system. I don't know how to make this faster. And yet we're not meeting the needs of people. And when people are looking for care today, we need to find a way to get them care today. And uh, anyway, I was uh, listening to a brilliant uh, speaker who talked about uh, a strategy for dealing with this kind of problem. And he said, you know, basically, if you had to do it, so if you had to do it the same day, how would you do it? So don't talk to me about why you can't do it. If you had to, if, you, if the gun was to your head, so, so to speak, what are you going to do? And so we, as a team, we talked about it and we, we thought, well, how would we do it? There's no way we could do it with telehealth. Um, maybe we could do some of this over the phone, which breaks some rules and we're going to need to get some support for that. And you know what? There are so many people who really want to make a difference in this space 
that we found support everywhere we turned. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I remember calling up the College of Physicians and Surgeons because I don't want to lose my license (laughs) and saying, hey, look, we're looking at doing something totally different. And we, this, this is the rationale. And, you know, we think this is a medical emergency. We think that um, doing things differently in this, in this setting actually is totally appropriate because people are dying. And uh, to my, uh, to, to the great credit of the College of Physicians and Surgeons folks, they, they took that information, uh, they reviewed it and looked at it from you know, a legality point of view and a safety point of view and all that. And they came back and said, yeah, we agree with you. And so you know, that, that's part of how it started is doing now phone assessments instead of even video assessments to nice. get people started on, on Suboxone. And then from there, with the pandemic, we got Zoom. And, and so now we can, we can still do a video call the same day. But we were able to do that years ago before the pandemic um, and, uh, and really make a difference for people. So that never again, never again, would we have a young person desperate for help who we're saying, yes, we can help you in three days. No, it's we'll help you today. We, we switched to seven days a week. Not that I... I'm dying to work weekends. I don't love working weekends. But the fact is, is it's not about me and it's not about my colleagues. It's, it's about the, it's the people we serve. And so long as addiction programs and clinics and stuff are saying, hey, you know what? We're 8.30 to 4.30 Monday to Friday. And, you know, you jump through our hoops. We're going to keep having problems. And, uh, and I think that as much as possible, recognizing that, you know, not everything's an emergency, but, you know, um, as much as possible as a health system, we need to get more comfortable saying, okay, what's the actual need? How do we need to actually address it? What do we need to change mm-hmm. in order to meet people where they're at? And instead of telling people to, you know, to contort themselves into uh, little balls and, and fit through our hoops. For sure. For yeah. Sure. I think that's the shift that I see is from us. I say us from, you know, the system saying you need to you need to accommodate the the individual needs to accommodate the system and make it for sure make it make switch their lives around to work within the system and that's puts a responsibility on the individual who you know if you're in that place you're probably not the best agent for yourself <laughs> um you're and you've got conflicting you've got conflicting priorities right mm-hmm. And I, I remember talking to somebody just a couple of days ago about this. And uh, I was saying, you know, when it was actually my son, we were talking about addiction. And, uh, and I said, you know, it was actually on the homeless or the housing first concept is, is where we got talking about it. And uh, we were talking about some of the statistics and how the statistics were gathered for Medicine Hat to have ended homelessness. And I said, well, it, it basically comes down to if you don't, if you don't go in and report um, on a regular basis for a period of three months, then they assume you're housed. So they have a zero, we, you know, we've had, we didn't have anybody report consecutively for three months. So we can declare that we've ended homelessness in the region. So I said, I, as my son was explaining to me how this was explained to him in school and how he was happy about it. And, you know, I'm great that they're at least talking about these issues. Um, but I, I had to explain to him, I said, you know, for some people that works fine, but for people that are suffering from mental health or addiction issues, they have other priorities. And, and if every ounce of everything that I do today goes into me gathering the resources I need to feed my addiction, that is a much higher priority than going into report on, I'm still not housed by the way. And so it, it kind of skews reality a little bit. And I, and I think that, um, you know, this movement moves us more to making the system work around the individual than requiring the individual to work within the system. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge shift in thinking, but one of the most critical pieces. And, and I, I love what you said. And actually I've like, that's ringing through my head on so many fronts about, you know, don't let's not focus on why we can't do something. Let's, if we had to, how would we do it? Mm-hmm. And you become, that forces you to become solution focused. For right? sure. And, and not focus on the bureaucracy, the limitations, the, all, all of the reasons that that won't work. Solution focused, like, that's where we need to be mm-hmm. in the world of recovery. Absolutely. And I feel that's kind of what we have done at our collective journey. 
right? It's to fill that space that, you know, why we can't do this is why all these agencies and, and other individuals have never done something like we're doing because there's limitations and there's ethics and there's, you know, we can't have our phones on. We can't give out our personal numbers. We can't do self-disclosure, all these things. Right. And it's, you nailed it. I think Dr. Day is that person centered approach, right. And so many agencies that, you know, that's a catchphrase. It looks great on paper. We're, we're client focused. We're person centered, uh, all these things from eight to four and don't phone me at lunch. Cause I'll be on my lunch break. And then I, I told you what time to phone and all these things. Right. And for us, it's like, no, that doesn't work. Person-centered means when you're ready, you know, for us, you give us a call and somebody's answering the phone and then we're going to work with you. It doesn't matter if it's Sunday at eight o'clock at night. And and a prime example of that is we had a young man reach out uh, not too long ago and uh, I got a text message from him going, I'm done. And that was at 7 a.m. on a weekend Mm -hmm. and he was done and he was scared and he, uh, he had been on about a five day stint and uh and i was at that address well he didn't even give me an address he wasn't sure where he was it was a geo it was a geo locate on his phone is what i got and just come help me i i can't do this anymore and i got him and i went to that place and i got him by 7 30 and by the time i had got to him at 7 30 i had arranged with the crisis team with ahs they had made arrangements at emergency emergency was waiting for him when i pulled up he, uh, once they got him stabilized, cause his, his car, he had some significant cardiac issues. Um, his, I think when we got him in his BP he was like 186 over 121, which is significantly higher than it should be for a young, healthy man. Um, and so they, they stabilized him for a course of a few days to get his cardiac issues sorted out. We then picked him up, um, pretty much seamlessly picked him up, took him to the airport and we had already made arrangements to get him into treatment. So within him going, I'm, I'm done. I need help at 7am on a Saturday. We mm-hmm. had him being picked up by a treatment facility in British Columbia at the airport. I think it was Tuesday at four o'clock Yeah, after being stabilized. Right. And I think that just speaks to being actually person focused. Mm-hmm. We're, we're there when we need you because it, it is that window. Like, you know, and if it was, if it was an opioid issue. I absolutely would have called the 1-800 number because that's, you know, that window is just the window that you have. Yep. And had we waited, had we not answered the phone that day, had we, you know, left a voicemail, we'll get back to you on Monday. The chance of him phoning back on Monday, you know, he's either dead or using again or yep. in a different mind space. And yeah, it's not that bad yet. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, gets a little bit of clarity and a couple hours of sleep and it's like, oh. No, I was overreacting my, just because it felt like my heart was beating out of my chest. It wasn't actually. Yeah. When it's like, no, 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 it was, I could see it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. That's, that's so true. We, we have to, we have to catch people in that moment when they need it because mm-hmm. if, well, I think be back in the days when we had a three or four day wait list, you could have somebody who calls in and they're desperate. You set everything up and then they don't show up. Right. Because, you know just like you said, they, they scored something or they, you know, managed to boost something and they're able to use that or whatever. Their, their situation is different three days later. And, and that's the sort of ups and downs of this, where we need to, as providers, we, we have to get good at, uh, or better at being there in the moment. And so for us, the benefit, one of the benefits that we've seen uh, for us uh, on our side is that by just, you know, the person's on the phone right now, wanting help right now, they don't know show that call because they've made it and they're there and they're ready at that moment. And it's, it's, it's really beautiful. And in a way makes our job easier for that intake piece. Now, that being said, when, when you're really low barrier like that, you're going to have people who call in and they're desperate today and they're not desperate three days from now. And so they, you know, sayonara, we don't, don't hear from them again for a while. And that's totally okay. I'd rather do that. So I'd rather give people lots of opportunity to get into treatment and into recovery. And if they don't follow through with it, that's okay. Uh, you know, that's, that's their decision. At least they had the opportunity and they're always welcome back for that next opportunity because, you know, life is life. And which of us have just done the right thing the moment we had a chance to do the right thing the first time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so that part's really, really great. Whereas, you know, there are other 
provinces and there are other programs where, you know, the hoops are so great that I'm aware of a program. Um, this will blow your minds. I think um, where basically like, let's suppose you're in detox and in detox, you got started on Suboxone and you're living in a community where this program is. I'm not going to name anybody. Don't, <laughs> don't want to shame anyone. You can use me again. <laughs> but uh, no, <laughs> I'm thinking program names, to be honest. Okay. Um, so, you know, you're, you're going to be out of detox in four or five days. So you, want, you need to have follow-up care arranged. So you check in with this other program to get started. The way that they worked is that you would actually have to book an appointment um, usually a week later in order to go for an information session on what opioid agonist therapy was and what all the clinical rules were. If you didn't show up for that appointment, then you could not get an appointment. <clears throat> so now you've, you're, you know, you're desperate. So your, your detox window is only so short and you have to try and get, so the day you get out of detox, you get that appointment, you know, in with the, this clinic for education, quote unquote, um, which they could give you in a pamphlet, by the way. But um, then as soon as you do that, then they would book you in for your first intake appointment the following week. And unless detox was bridging you for a week in the community, yeah. you're now off medication for a week. Right. And you're back into using and now you're showing up, uh, you know, having been using or having been in living through hell for a week in order to get that first appointment. Yeah. And I, so I asked the, I asked the, the clinic uh, lead, why, why do you, why do you do this? And this, it, it's so horrific. Um, like I'm almost embarrassed to say this because in some ways I don't want the public to know how s- stupid some people are. <laughs> um, but um, at the same time, people need to understand that this, that yes, the system's been broken and we're working really hard to fix it. And so, you know, we're getting to a better place. So if you've, if you've been frustrated with the system, it, you're not crazy. The system's had its real problems. So this, this clinic lead said to me that they didn't want to do same-day appointments. They didn't want to do expedited appointments because essentially it weeded out the least motivated people. Oh my so God. only the most capable, the people with the most capital at recovery mm-hmm. would be able to jump through those hoops, survive those days, make it to the appointment. And so it actually, you know, made their program statistics look better because, you know, they, they weeded out the people who had the most struggles and you just like, for me, my head nearly exploded. It felt like, because you're sitting there saying, okay, we are, we're living through an addiction epidemic, an addiction crisis in North, all of North America. This isn't, an, this isn't an Alberta thing. This is a North American addiction crisis. And there are people dying every day. And you and some of your colleagues are going around saying our only hope now is to, you know, essentially give out uh, street supplies of drugs that are quote unquote safe or safer. And at the same time, you're putting up massive hurdles to people who could be getting on evidence-based treatment medications mm-hmm. that we have solid evidence work. Like there was a, a great review last year that looked at over 750,000 people who went into treatment. And they found that of those 750,000 people who went on medication treatment for opioid addiction, that their all-cause mortality dropped by 50%. Wow. So getting a person into treatment dropped their likelihood of dying in half and not just from overdoses. It dropped their likelihood of dying of a heart attack, just like your guy, just like the, your, your new friend who uh, had a horrible blood pressure and his heart was beating out of his chest. When we get people stable on medications and we're treating them, they're now going to get follow-up for their medical care. They're mm-hmm. going to take care of their diabetes. They're mm-hmm. going to check that uh, growth on their skin that looks like it might be cancerous. All cause mortality decreases by 50%. And we need to stop finding excuses to not help people. Mm-hmm. And we need, to, we need to help people. And you know what? If having a low barrier approach means that I lose to care 50 people this week who only stuck around for a week, don't care. We gave them an opportunity and there's personal accountability for what a person chooses to do. 
our job is to make it as straightforward and as simple as possible and as safe and friendly and accepting as possible so that they know they're safe and they know we can help them. And then from there, we'll, we'll take whatever benefits we can get. Wow. You are on the right path. I mean, <laughs> it's, it, it's so, it's so refreshing. You know, there's been a lot of frustration and we talk to a lot of people that are frustrated by the, the system, right. And the system failures and, and, uh, the, you know, w- one of the things I love most about getting the opportunity to chat with you is, is there's a lot of, there's a lot of statistics out there that you can spin to whatever agenda you want. Right. For sure. And I know, you know, in, in some conversations that we've had with you, you've provided clarity on some misgivings around some statistics and, uh, and it's really cool to get the opportunity to chat with a guy that has access to the actual raw data and, and be able to separate fact from fiction and, and kind of take away the spin doctor aspect of some of those statistics. And, uh, just to be able to see the difference that that, that response can make and, and how appreciative I am that the, the, the government, um, is in a position that they realize this and, and they're trying to make that conscious shift mm-hmm. to, eliminate obstacles because you know like like you said right it's it's like the system was rigged that only the people with the most potential for success had the opportunity to be successful and uh i think you know as as a one as a human being i think everybody deserves the opportunity to be successful but secondly i got really frustrated as a taxpayer going how much money are we providing to services that statistically aren't delivering while providing us with skewed to statistics to support that they are delivering. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, would, would it, when, when we get statistics out of some of the agencies, I'm going, well, you know, the numbers you're giving me doesn't match the reality that I'm seeing from my clients, the family members of my clients, the people in the general public. It's like those two things are completely misaligned, but it's easy to rig the statistics when you're only counting the people that have the, you know, it, it's like the homelessness thing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's really easy to say that we have no homeless people if you don't count the homeless people. For sure. It's really easy to say that we've got really high statistics of success when we only measure the people with the highest yeah. rate of, you know, potential rate of success. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the path that we're on, like you said, you know, I, I, I myself, like when you, when you call us, you're calling my cell phone. It, it comes into me at 2.30 in the morning, if that's when you call. I would rather take 100 of those phone calls to get 10 of them for sure. that are actually going to follow through with it because mm-hmm. that's 10 people that we made a difference to rather than going, no, you got to, and, and maybe that number drops to one if I'm only providing for that sure. potential service to the people who are most likely to be successful. Yeah. I mean, it's just numbers. I'll, I'll take that all day. You know, I have no problem answering my phone, just knowing that I'm there for more people when that window of opportunity is open. Yeah, for sure. I love what, how you said it, Dr. Day is, you know, um, when they're ready type thing, right? It's not up to me to decide when they're ready. And, and that's that other piece, like kind of what you're talking about, Rick, if, you know, if, if people are coming to us with low recovery capital, and I've seen this because I worked in other agencies and they don't, you know, because of the obstacles we've put in place that we've overlooked or we don't even care anymore, they aren't making those follow-up appointments or the, even that first appointment. And then it's so easy to write them off and say, well, they're just not ready. They'll be back when they're ready. Well, we've put six barriers in place that makes it impossible for them to become ready again. Well, and some of those barriers we don't even recognize because of where our recovery capital is at. For sure. You know, it's like, well, all you got to do is call me and tell me that you're going to be late for the appointment or you can't make the yeah. appointment. How hard is that? Oh, well, wait. it's really hard to somebody who doesn't have a phone. Yeah. Right. right? Like, or the internet or whatever. Exactly. Right? So, um, you know, a lot of those barriers that I think are the systems are setting up are, um, are barriers that, you know, people, a lot of people in, in recovery and, and, and in good health or, or not even require, you know, it's, if it, it's really hard to look at things through a lens that, you know, if you've got all that recovery capital, I might not even see the barriers mm-hmm. that I put in front of somebody in those, in the, to, whether it's intake, whether, however, however it is, right. Reaching out for whatever. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really refreshing to hear that 
somebody that gets to sit in a room with policymakers has some influence over and is focused on the same things that we're focused on. Totally. I, I asked myself uh, when, you know, when we're looking at our, our program and our service delivery, because we've changed a lot and we're always changing actually because we don't get it right. And it's okay. It's okay that we don't get it right. So long as we're working on getting it right. Because mm-hmm. um, uh, none, of, none of us are, are omniscient. No, no one's given me a crystal ball yet. So, <laughs> um, you know, the, the fact is, is we, we do our best, but a, a key question I ask myself is, would I accept these barriers for my own loved one? Yeah. So if this was my kid who was desperate and trying to get into treatment today, would any of these excuses matter or would I be making the call to say, hey, look, this isn't okay, using my influence or whatever to try and make it more straightforward for my kid? And if it's good enough for my kid, then it's good enough for someone else's kid and everybody's someone's kid. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, whatever the barriers are, whatever the obstacles are in any, in any program, frankly, across healthcare for everything, but uh, for addiction, especially, especially when we're dealing with people with uh, mental health challenges and with vulnerable uh, uh, vulnerability issues, you know, we need to be saying, hey, how do we make this work? Because uh, uh, they deserve it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the coolest things that I love about doing this podcast and being at the Recovery Summit and, and meeting yourself and other you know, established medical professionals and politicians and stuff is that it gives that look behind the curtain. Cause you know, up until that, those points for me, it was, you know, I would read articles that so-and-so posted on Facebook about yourself or the government or whatever. Right. And then you get into the muddy comments and everybody's throwing mud around and everybody's an asshole and nobody's doing anything. And then you get to sit down and listen, you know, it's great that we have these acronyms and doors and VODP and stuff like that. And people can read about them. But when you get to sit down and listen to someone like yourself who had hands-on experience developing this stuff and the reasoning behind it, like you shared with all of our listeners today, that's when we put a face to all these posts and this, you know, get to know the heart and soul behind what's the reasoning behind these. It's not a moneymaker. It's not this or that. It's, it's because everybody matters and everybody's somebody's kid, like you said, right? And we're never going to get it perfect, but as long as we're always trying to help the next person, we'll, we'll figure it out someday. But I think, yeah, that's the beauty of stuff like this. And that's what keeps me coming back to these podcasts and, and hosting individuals like yourself, because we get to know what's the reasoning behind it. It's not just bullshit and fluff and it's not for votes and it's, it's cause people care. And, and I love that you're so vulnerable and open to say, you know, we, is it perfect? No, but we're working to make it better. And that's the beauty of you coming on today, I think is. Anyone who isn't listening to this, well, they'll listen. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> one, of, one of the things, one of the, you know, a couple things that I will take away is, is um, when you were, when you were talking and uh, the thing that came to mind for me was, you know, it's okay to fail, just fail fast. Right. So, so what I mean by that is if, if we're, if, if we're, you know, don't be afraid to do something different. On whatever, you know, whether that's in my own personal life, whether mm-hmm. that's OCJ, whether that's any of the listeners, whether that's government regulators, policymakers, don't be afraid to do something different if you see what's working isn't working. Yeah. Or sorry, what, what you're doing isn't working. For sure. Right? But so jump, jump, go a different direction, but be humble enough to go, that didn't work mm-hmm. onto the next idea. Right. And, and, and not just get so bogged down by, well, we've switched directions this time. So like, we've really got to ride this out and see where it goes. It's like, no, if it's not working, it's not working <laughs> yeah. like shift next. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, I think through that process, we'll get to a spot that we're much, we're much better and, and listening to, you know, the collaboration piece of talking with, you know, one of the things that I, I appreciate most about you, doctor is, um, I have no acronyms behind my name, none. Um, but when you spoke to me, I didn't feel like you were speaking at me. It was mm-hmm. a two-way conversation. And I felt like I had the opportunity to provide insight to you for your research. And maybe that's my ego trying to convince me, but you did a really good job of selling it if it wasn't. <laughs> uh, but it's like, you know, let's listen to the people that are in the trenches. Let's totally. listen to the people with experience and let's not try to dictate to them how we think it should go. Mm-hmm. Let's, and I guess that comes back to the person-centered approach, right? Is 
is let's uh let's do better so sure. with with that we're getting really close to our time here um you know do you have any one of the things i really wanted to talk about was the doors app i think that thing's brilliant but maybe we can have you back in chat part two again. um but yeah, I guess on, on that note, is there any uh, closing remarks you'd like to make? Well, you know what? I really appreciate you appreciated you talking about failing fast. That's a that's brilliant, and we have to do it. If Apple waited to deliver the perfect iPhone, we'd have never had smartphones, right? Um, nobody wants uh, iPhone 1.0 today. Yeah. But we all wanted it back then. And, uh, and so it's okay. It's okay to iterate. It's okay to improve over time. And then um, the, the last comment I have, and this is kind of new, it's not really a wrap up thing, but I think that everybody who's listening needs to know this. And maybe we can talk about it another time uh, if you guys decide to have me back. But um, the fact of the matter is, is that if we give young people, uh, so youths and young adults, if we give them one prescription for an opioid medication, prescribed for a real legitimate reason. And in the research, it was for uh, having their wisdom teeth taken out. Those kids will go on in the next year to have factors associated with opioid addiction at a rate of just under 6%, one prescription exposure. Whereas in other kids who did not get the opioid prescription, those kids had a risk, you know, sort of associated factors with opioid addiction of 0.2%. So uh, there's a massive, would, would you let your kid have a one in 20 chance, take a one in, you know, a 20-sided die and you roll it and they're going to now have a lifelong challenge with um, opioid addiction and with the difficult journey of recovery. Now it's real and it's good and people are recovering every single day, but would we, would we choose that for our loved ones? Probably not. And so when people are talking about safe opioids or safe pharmaceutical options for opioids. We need to be really careful about that. And we need to recognize that opioids are, are really challenging. They're highly addictive. And as much as possible, we need to not swim in that river. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I think we'd be humbled to have you back on. I oh, love for sure. I've never had a conversation that I felt was over with you. Every time we separate, it's like, I've got a million more things to say. And we've just always run out of time. Um, so again, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on Mr. Dr. Nathaniel Day. <laughs> nice. Um, and yeah, we'd love to have you back. Um, again, I feel like we've got a list of things that I'd like to talk more about. That last point is one of them for yeah. sure. How do we avoid getting there? Absolutely. Wonderful. Yeah. With that, uh, thanks to our listeners. Thanks uh, to the crew here at Plugged In Media. Thanks for Dr. Nathaniel Day. And thanks, Ryan, for being my friend. Hey, you're welcome, buddy checks in the mail (laughs) the end from darkness to life is an our collective journey podcast these are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges if these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn our collective journey is here for you please consider supporting ocj by visiting ourcollectivejourney.ca and clicking donate All proceeds go to supporting the health and wellness of people in our community. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pape. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a Plugged In Media Network exclusive. Thank you for listening.